Today we are going to be in Acts. Uh, if you have digital version of the scripture or paper, um, some a uh, little bit of it will be on the screen. We're going to go to the end of Acts 23. Pastor Steve uh, preached on that chat part of that chapter last week. Uh, today we're going to do something. Uh, it's not that different, but a little bit uh, in our flow. We haven't done it for a while. I have recruited. Uh, the Honorable Lois Morris, uh, to read our text today. So for the bulk of the message this morning, uh, between her and I, she will be reading the scripture, so that's who you really want to listen to. And then it'll be interspersed with some uh, teaching and information for you. Uh, and so then uh, that will be my role. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 26 today. So... Um, I hope this will be helpful to you as I considered in preparation, well, I don't even want to listen to myself that long, so let's bring in, let's bring in the big guns uh, for the scripture. Uh, so thank you to Lois for agreeing to do this, and um, let's see, well, let's pray before we get rolling, and then and we're going to move, so if you're in the text, um, you're going to have to stay with us on the tracks for this, or... Uh, if your mind wanders too much, uh, we might leave you behind. So, Father, we are grateful for uh, the scriptures, um, for what you're teaching us through the book of Acts, um, your work in the early church. We pray that there would be something in uh, the scripture this morning, what Luke has given to us, uh, something from your spirit as we head toward communion this morning, uh, that you would minister to us uh, your grace and your goodness, uh, your correction when needed. Uh, overall, that you would shape us into the people you desire us to be in Christ's name. Amen. As by way of setup, a quick review of the timeline, part of Paul's timeline. Um, we've been cruising through the journeys, uh, and now where we are landing, the setup uh, last week was toward imprisonment uh, in Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima on the coast. Uh, and I also threw on here, and I'll reference it a couple times, I think it's important for us to keep in mind uh, what's going on uh, in culture. Geography is important. Culture, history is important. Let's not forget that in AD 66, there will be the Jewish revolt in Judea against Rome. That is a big, big deal if you know anything uh, about that region. And so that is kind of humming in the background of everything we're going to hear this morning. Uh, Paul's situation uh, there, this is, this is a pending deal. Uh, here's to help us as Lois will kick us off uh, with Acts 23 to 31. Uh, we saw last week that uh, Paul, with a huge um, military force, was being sent up to Caesarea. And so we're going to start there in the text with uh, 2331. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Okay, so just uh, 
to note on the map. Jerusalem, Caesarea, about 54 miles. Uh, the orange here, unless you're colorblind, um, the path up to Anapatris, uh, that's how far the whole force goes, right? Uh, spearmen, foot soldiers, horses, uh, they travel up that far, looks about halfway. Um, and then from there to Caesarea, the Calvary takes Paul the rest of the way. They arrive up there, deliver the information to the governor, and he says, great, we'll, uh, we'll wait till your accusers get here. We're going to hold a trial. Paul's a Roman citizen. We have learned this through Acts. And uh, here is uh, kind of a modern-day shot of Caesarea. So um, depending on how good uh, your eyesights are, the uh, furthest left, Herod's palace. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, that's where Paul is held out by the, the sea there. You've got the theater, the hippodrome, the temple um, in this place. Uh, I have to be careful not to get too distracted with Caesarea because Herod the Great commissioned the construction of this. And it, if you want a fun kind of dive into history, this is a great place to start. Just incredible feats of engineering, uh, just things that had never been done before in the ancient world happened here. This is where Paul is sent to. So let's keep that in mind. On to chapter 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. Oh, real quick interruption. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you remember this, See what Luke says? Um, they went down to Caesarea. But Caesarea is north of Jerusalem, right? Uh, just a note in, the, in the, the Bible, everything is up to Jerusalem. Everything. Doesn't matter east, west, north, south. You always go up to Jerusalem, and then you go down to wherever you're going. So don't let that throw you off. Okay, continue. Okay. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation asserting that these things were true. Let's uh, make clear there in, the, in what we just heard, Tertullus is a lawyer, and boy, does he sound like one, okay? No offense for you who practice law, uh, but we know that Felix, uh, Felix was the governor of Judea from AD 52 to 59, so he has a little run there. Uh, Tacitus uh, writes of him that he was filled with every kind of cruelty, and lust. So pair that with what Tertullus just buttered the bread of Felix with. Uh, remember, just because sometimes when things are in Scripture, let's not get lost in the narrative that is happening. 
uh, what's going on and whether what Tertullus is saying, and soon we'll hear from Paul, his presentation to Felix, uh, what's the point of that versus Paul's defense. So we keep all those together. Um, it's been written of uh, Felix that he uh, basically lived by the rule that whatever's in it for me is good and uh, whatever I can get out of life is good. He uh, took someone else's wife, so we know that is going on. He had uh, swiped someone else's wife, was married to her. That's not looked on very favorably by the Jewish community, and so um, those things are all playing in. We're going to meet many characters in these few chapters, and I would again ask us not to lose sight that we are within a decade of the revolt of the Jews against Rome. So tensions are high, people are on edge, and if you think for one minute that this is just a simple religious squabble, it's not. This is not just a little church debate off in the corner somewhere. This Paul and the preaching of the gospel throughout all the provinces, it's a really big deal. And Rome is trying to determine uh, what's involved in this, how serious should we take this. Felix, by the way, is eventually ousted because he's so amazing that uh, the emperor Nero kicks him out of his position. So if Nero kicks you out for being a loose cannon, you've got real issues, right? Uh, He has poor leadership and he is banished from his spot. Uh, Continuing on in verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Of these who are here, of these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. 
So we have Paul recounting, giving his defense, recounting, uh, this is all pointing back to what took place in Acts 23. And so Paul uh, says, hey, here's what happened. Here's the facts. Uh, here's what's going on. Um, and so he's pleading his case and Felix hears it, uh, isn't going to make a decision, says, hey, let's wait for the commander from uh, Jerusalem to get here, send uh, Paul off to home prison. Uh, here's another shot, different angle of Caesarea. You can see uh, down on the bottom right, um, that is uh, the, the ruins of Herod's palace. Uh, on the sea there. The water levels have risen quite a bit uh, in the last couple thousand years, so um, there's some of it underwater now. Of course, you can kind of make out there's a court. You see some green things and some they've put back up some of the pillars to mark it um, there. And then here's a shot uh, with a mosaic on the floor. And looking out, you'll see the rock is cut. Um, one of the feats that Herod the Great uh, did was he cut in the center of his palace, he cut a freshwater pool, and then he had aqueducts reroute fresh water for some like 19 miles to Caesarea so he could swim in fresh water while he looked at the ocean. Um, slightly extravagant, but delicious, wouldn't you say? <laughs> um, opulent, just incredible. I know some of you have properties up in the mountains and in cabins, but just think of Herod's palace on the sea with the fresh water next time you're up in the blowy, snowy wind of the mountains. Um, <laughs> house arrest. Uh, I think we've mentioned this. Uh, it doesn't work like our culture. You're under house arrest, but we're not going to take care of you, right? So you're, you're at the mercy of a network, friends, family. We met Paul's nephew uh, in 23, and so uh, undoubtedly, you know, this isn't happening in a weekend. This is happening over a, a long period of time. And so uh, word gets out, Paul needs, you know, food. He needs care. He needs uh, supplies and things like that. And he's being held captive. Uh, and just imagine the, the paradox of like, he's not free, he's being held captive, but in perhaps the most beautiful spot in all of the Roman Empire. So just how that how does that make him feel? Like, what's going on as this plays out? It's just, it's a fascinating setting. Verse 24, please. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Pause. <laughs> Felix's wife is Jewish. Interesting. Let's not miss that fact. And uh, also, Drusilla, we'll get to this, Herod Agrippa II, we're going to meet him in a second. That's a confusing sentence. Herod Agrippa II, we're going to meet him in a second. <laughs> Drusilla is his sister, one of his sisters. And by the way, Agrippa, if you're confused by the Herods and the thing, these are, this is Herod the Great's lineage. Agrippa is a great-grandson. Agrippa II is great-grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa I is the first grandson of Herod the Great. So, Drusilla is with Felix. Drusilla is who Felix swiped even though she was married. And Luke doesn't draw attention to Drusilla's past. But anyone who heard or read this knew of her. She was famous in the Roman Empire as the sister of Agrippa and the fact that she had been married to someone else when, he, when Felix had swiped her. So good background. Please continue. He sent for Paul 
and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So as he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Let's reiterate, Felix, uh, he's a weasel. Um, and so let's, you know, there's not like, oh, Luke is telling us as much. This isn't like a genuine interest in the faith or whatever. He's in it for what he can get. You know, he's known to stir up the Jews and cause problems, and he's cruel and he's lustful, and he's kind of toying with Paul. And Paul comes in, and what does he talk about? He talks about righteousness, right relatedness to God, self-control, and the judgment to come. So if you're Drusilla and Felix, I mean, is that a good time? Like, they're, they want something from Paul, but he's kind of going after it. And... Um, We'll, we'll get to it in a minute in the text as well, but let's not forget uh, Herod Antipas. Have you heard of this guy? Uh, he's like a great uncle of the Agrippas. He decapitated a guy named John the Baptist. So, and we know from John the Baptist story that John railed against the inappropriate marriage that Antipas had, right? And so his decapitation happens at a drunken party uh, in some kind of weird setting. And so this, this is the crowd Paul is directly dealing with. Um, the stakes are very high, and Paul doesn't seem to be holding anything back. He's just laying it down uh, at Felix and Drusilla. Verse 27, please. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Okay, reminder, two years. This location, you know, this again, not a weekend, not a month, two years, this kind of process happens. You can sort of fill in like, what's that like? What's going on? Paul's processing, he's praying, he's thinking, he's having conversations. Um, and then also Festus, good to know. AD 60 to 62, he was the governor of Judea uh, stationed there. And Josephus claims that Festus was an honorable man. 25. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. Okay, so just a quick reminder for us, same plot as Acts 23. Uh, in that 54-mile stretch, let's ambush Paul, let's kill him on the way. Uh, Festus, we can very well assume he knows of kind of what's been happening with this prisoner. He's very aware of what's going on, that Paul's a Roman citizen. We, that was covered last week a little bit. So same plot, uh, stuff's going on. They're trying to, to rework this. So verse six, please. 
After spending eight or 10 days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. It's good to note here because it's so pronounced in Luke's writing that one of Luke's primary concerns is with this question. How can a church that has both Jews and Roman Gentiles live out a commitment to Jesus faithfully while within the empire? Right? How do you have a mixed group of people who follow the way who are both Jews and Romans committed to Jesus, faithfully living that within the empire? William Willimon, um, who writes a commentary on Acts, says this, Luke's claim is that Paul is guilty of treason against neither Judaism nor Rome. And of course, Paul's real audience in the book of Acts is not Roman or Jewish officials, but it's actually the church of Theophilus's day. Remember, Theophilus commissions this work by Luke. So Luke is writing to a church of both Jews and Gentiles, and he wants them to see many things, but two primary, and we see them here. One, our movement of following Jesus is best understood as a brand of Judaism. Right? So when you see Paul's, we'll continue to see it. His defense is, uh, we are well housed within bounds of where this movement has come out of, the followers of the way. And number two, we can work within the empire to accomplish our purposes, right? So uh, Paul's saying, hey, we're not, we're not part of the revolt. We're not trying to take up swords against Rome. Um, we actually, this, something else is going on here, both for Jews and Romans. Uh, Paul's going after the hearts of people. He's got the gospel. He can see. He's free. He wants that for other people. So that should help frame when we see Paul here uh, continuing with his defense, he's doing both of these things. I'm not guilty of their accusations, and I'm innocent by Roman standards as well. Please continue verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But hand me over to them. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So Festus in verse nine, he's being a sneaky little stinker in that question, if you caught it, uh, he's, it's kind of a, he's still trying to get out of this mess, isn't he? Hey, how about if you just follow me 54 miles up to Jerusalem so someone can ambush and kill you? <laughs> right? He knows that's the plot, wasn't it? Hey, bring Paul up here, we'll try him, and on the way we'll kill him. This thing's getting becoming a sticky wicket for uh, Festus. So he's like, hey, you want to go? 
I, no doubt, I, I would think in those two years, you probably have Festus and a guy like Felix and others. There's collusion happening. We don't have the emails, but I'm pretty sure uh, if we did, uh, you know, the, these governors, you know, make no mistake, their, their necks are on the line too. And they're like, oh man. So Paul, uh, then we have the big move, of course. Paul throws down the gauntlet. He appeals to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, that's the highest court, right? He, it's the court. So, and we're talking about Nero. We're talking about Emperor Nero. Paul's like, hey, you know what? I appeal to Nero. And once that is declared and demanded, uh, now he's really got the governor's uh, hands tied in this. I believe uh, there's debate. Why does Paul do this? Because we're going to see how this plays out for him. Um, I would, uh, not a far stretch, I think it's linked to something Paul heard directly from Jesus. And in 23, after kind of a, the upheaval uh, in Jerusalem, the following night, this is 2311, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The root word of testify, uh, no surprise, is martyr. And it's linked to the word of witness. So witnessing and testifying, closely connected. Paul invoking his appeal to Caesar after two years. He's waited until this moment after two years to bring that on. And my best guess is that Paul is a very intelligent guy. All that's playing out, things are, you know, the pressure, the crushing, the, the pressing of the moment, um, probably led by the Spirit, Paul knows this is how I get to Rome, right? This is how I get to Rome. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to testify there. And so this is the path I see, and I'm going to take it, right? So he appeals to Caesar. Uh, verse 13, please. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Okay. A couple more characters we have to meet. Agrippa, we've talked a little bit about him. Agrippa II, we met his dad in Acts 12. You can go back and he attacked the church and met a swift and horrible end. Uh, this is his son, Agrippa II, great-grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, he's very popular with Romans and Jews. So I don't know, whoever you guys follow in our culture who's really you know, popular, has a lot of followers, whether it's sports, uh, acting. What, I mean, these are, now we're getting into cream of the crop of Roman elite, right? So if they had Inquirer, if they had uh, whatever news stations, TMZ, paparazzi, these are the people. Agrippa II. Uh, by the way, he opposes the Jewish revolt in 66 to 70. He would be wounded in battle um, as he supports the Roman forces. Uh, he's a close friend with Josephus, uh, and he's the last prince of the house of Herod the Great. He dies somewhere in the 90s uh, AD. Uh, we've already talked about his great uncle is Herod Antipas, who decapitated John the Baptist. Then we move to Bernice, who's with him. Bernice is his sister, one of. We've already met Drusilla. So this is quite the family affair. Bernice has several failed marriages, including one to her uncle, one of the Herods. Rumors of incestuous relationship with her brother Agrippa are all throughout the empire. Um, it's, they have a very bizarre, odd relationship. She had an affair with Titus eventually, 
um, who was 11 years her junior. Um, she was known to be incredibly beautiful, a wild fame, very, very powerful. So these two come rolling into Caesarea. Luke does not include these details, but let me assure us, he doesn't need to. Just like if we dropped certain names in our culture, everyone in this room knows pieces of who those people would be. So Paul, Luke wants to show us, Paul's at the epicenter of Roman power, wealth, and fame. I mean, this is, this is quite the spectacle in probably the most coveted palace in the empire. Verse 14, please. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so, I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great group and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. And as we've said, a note, the emperor's Nero, if you know anything about him, and the tension between the Jews and Rome. You can see, you can feel it uh, in these conversations and meetings, like who's going to take responsibility for this? And if we handle this inappropriately, what will it trigger? And uh, mostly, how do we get out of this and save our own necks at the same time? So... Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs 
and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised to our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is recounting his, if we would call it conversion, his encounter with Jesus, his experience of Jesus. And in 16, uh, Luke gives us the statement that uh, Jesus directly tells Paul, you're going to be a servant and a witness. And there's that word witness, same as testify, the root is the same as martyr. We're going to circle back to this as we wrap things up, but um, let's let this sit with us as we continue to hear Paul uh, give his defense before the court. Verse 19, please. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. 
You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The last statement, uh, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It should beg the question, is Paul free or not? In this scene, who is free and who is not? What happens if Paul is set free and is free to wander back to Jerusalem? Is that freedom? Uh, it's a fascinating question. I think Luke wants us to ponder that. The response to Paul's defense is mixed. Festus thinks he's crazy. Agrippa laughs at Paul's attempt to win him to Christ. Um, there's no repentance. Uh, this whole crew is intellectually sophisticated, smug, and powerful. They agree Paul has done nothing to deserve, to deserve death based on the law, uh, but it kind of ends there and they are going to send him on to Rome. Uh, in this uh, verse, Paul's recounting that Jesus called him to be a servant and witness, and that Paul's been obedient to that call. He's been faithful to that call. Paul was blind, and now he sees. And uh, he's sharing with them, and the way I would kind of recapture it is um, Paul's life in every way since Jesus' intervention has been one of disruption, hasn't it? It wasn't like he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and then he really got his investments in line. He got a new Tesla. His family was healthy. He had real good, his grandchildren and children all came to the faith. Uh, everyone sang Kumbaya as they watched The Wizard of Oz. Um, this, it, you know, whatever we might insert into what we would like God to do for us, his favorite gladiator wasn't winning all the tournaments. Um, in every way, Paul's life is a mess. Think about that too. Luke wants us to see when Jesus intercepts people's lives, it brings them to ruin. Follow Jesus. <laughs> it brings them based on what? It brings them to ruin based on our cultural categories of success and freedom. Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, Drusilla, all these guys. Oh, Paul's in prison. We're the ones who are free and powerful. Are they? It doesn't seem like Paul thinks so. Paul's going after them. We could say it this way. Paul can truly see and he is truly free. 
Paul can truly see and he is truly free. And I mean, you want to talk about someone who's brazen and who has had two years to prepare himself to give what we just heard him speak to Agrippa, whose uncle cut the head off of John the Baptist. I mean, Paul goes right after him, doesn't he? He's not only defending himself, but what's he doing? He's trying to disrupt them. He's trying to give them the gospel. He's trying to say, hey, you guys can be, except for these chains, you need this freedom. You need this sight. You need what Jesus is offering. Paul's words uh, here, we've looked at servant and witness. I want to end with this. Uh, The servant aspect of what Paul is saying. In our culture, as I've thought about this, here's Here's how I would summarize it. I think our culture has the belief that if we liberate ourselves, right? If we liberate ourselves and we throw off any responsibility to God or to neighbor, that somehow that sets us free. If we can just liberate in our identity, in authority, but the reality is that that actually creates a prison of our own making. And from this self-made prison, just like Agrippa, Bernice, and the rest, We have no idea what to do with a true authority. We have no idea what to do with submission. We have no idea what to do with suffering. Proper submission to God and alignment with ourselves and our neighbors gives us the framework to face the reality of our human condition. That we will all die. That we all suffer. That ultimate meaning in life cannot be found in the ways that we try to determine. I mean, this is all embedded in what Paul has been defending uh, in Caesarea. The servant aspect, too, for Paul, this is not do stuff. Paul's not saying, hey, let's go on a mission trip. Let's go serve. Let's go work in the kitchen. Let's go work with children. Let's go. He's saying the servant part, just to be clear, it's belonging. It's identity. I am a servant of Jesus, right? That's why Paul can say this in Acts 20. I consider my life worth nothing to me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the tax the Lord Jesus has given to me. Paul is a servant of Christ. It's why he says what he says. He does what he does. And somewhere in there, the true freedom and the true sight that Jesus has given him has enabled him to say, oh, Now I really see I'm really free, and this is what it looks like. Paul also says uh, at the end of this verse in 20, um, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That was what he was given, to be a witness. There's the word again, testifying to witness. We've already said this is the root word martyr. And it's uh, Thomas Long wisely says, let's break it down real simple, to see and to tell. So Paul belongs to Jesus. I am a servant and I've been called to be a witness, basically to tell of what I've seen, what I've experienced, right? Um, The to see part is something we experience and see. The to tell part is something we then share with others. And we can't tell unless we've seen right? And unfortunately, I think a lot of times when we drill down into what's your experience, what's my experience with the risen Christ, do we have something to tell? How has Jesus entered into your marriage, your parenting, your employment, 
the car wreck you had, the illness you had, your suffering, the reality of your human condition that you're a created creature that will return to dust. As you wrestle with that in the depths of the night, how does the risen Christ speak and minister to you? And are you telling that? Are you witnessing to that? Long says this, quote, Thomas Long, one cannot witness in the second sense unless one has witnessed in the first sense. We can give testimony only about that which we've experienced. This does not imply that we have to understand everything to bear witness. Sometimes we testify to events we've experienced, but we don't comprehend. And sometimes our testimony about things might remain partially hidden to us. In my own life, if you're anything like me, my hesitancy with witnessing is housed in there. Well, I don't know all of it, or I'm not a professional, or I'm not sure. I'm scared. I don't have control. Uh, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We bring uh, what Jesus has done to us. We tell others. So God has fully and completely loved us in the person of Jesus. I think we would, most of us in here would affirm that. I'm not sure how deeply it's saturated into our hearts and our souls, but he's done that so that we might truly see and truly be free. Do we see Jesus for who he actually is? Do we see ourselves for who we actually are? Are we accurate in our perception? God has fully and completely loved us in Christ, we're going to come to the table, and this is what we ponder. He has done this in Jesus so that we could truly see and truly be free. Christ calls each one of us to experience him, and in turn, to be a witness to that experience, to the reality of his goodness, grace, and in our culture, his rightful demands on our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we ponder Paul's defense against the high court. Lord, would you use a portion of what Luke has written um, to shape and mold us in our, in our faith? As we come to the table and prepare our hearts, Lord, would you speak to us? We do desire true sight and true freedom. Sometimes that gets tangled and muddled um, as we make our way through our lives uh, here in 2023 in our places of work. Uh, Lord, and just living out in our culture. We ask that you would come and do something in us, continue to shape us, mold us, form us. Lord, um, do all the things that are needed uh, so that we could be reoriented and our hearts be in a proper posture before you. In Christ's name, amen.